Well, hi, everyone. It's Stuart Haynes here, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. And we've got another terrific episode for you today. If you practice in either a community or ambulatory care setting, you work with patients with high blood pressure every day. And many of those patients have comorbid kidney disease. And when I was in pharmacy school and during my residency training, we were taught that thiazide diuretics shouldn't be used in patients with advanced stages of kidney disease when their estimated GFR was less than 30 mils or so because thiazides couldn't achieve high enough concentrations in the renal tubules and therefore wouldn't be very effective. Uh, So you had to use a loop diuretic if you wanted to achieve good blood pressure control in these patients. Perhaps you've been told that as well. So that's why a recently published research report in the New England Journal of Medicine caught my eye because it suggests that perhaps chlorothalidone at least might effectively reduce blood pressure in patients with uncontrolled blood pressure who also have stage 4 CKD. And I've always favored the use of chlorothalidone over hydrochlorothiazide due to its higher potency and the fact that most of the landmark hypertension trials use chlorothalidone. So if chlorothalidone was effective in patients with advanced kidney disease too, well, that would be yet another reason to recommend it. And here to review the chlorothalidone in chronic kidney disease, or CLIC study, are Michael Ernst and Michelle Fravel from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Uh, Some of our listeners may be familiar with Dr. Ernst's work, and particularly his studies regarding the use of chlorothalidone for the treatment of hypertension. Or you may be familiar with Dr. Fravel's work related to nephrology, drug interactions with antihypertensive drugs or her interest in the impact of climate change on human health. Dr. Ernst is also professor of family medicine in the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. And Dr. Fravel provides direct patient care in the renal hypertension clinic at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. So Michael, I'm so happy that you're back on the iFormerX podcast today. And and Shelly, it's great to have you here as a first time contributor. Welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate the opportunity. It's always great to, to be back on here and to talk about one of my favorite drugs, chlorothalidone. Yes, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. So I'd like to start our discussion today about the role of thiazide diuretics in the treatment of hypertension. I think every pharmacist understands that thiazides are still considered the first-line, guideline-recommended choice for patients with high blood pressure, and it's frequently combined with other antihypertensives. Uh, But what do you see as the principal advantages of using thiazides for the initial treatment of hypertension? Are there particular groups of patients you feel are ideal candidates for thiazides? And and do you believe there are some principal disadvantages of using thiazides? Well, Stuart, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, thiazides have been in clinical practice for a long time, uh, starting back in 1960. And we've got a long history of proven benefit in cardiovascular event trials. So it's hard to ignore that evidence, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, starting with them initially. Um, But we do know that other classes uh, lower cardiovascular risks as well. Um, But thiazides are really that important foundational drug. Um, As you alluded to, they've been shown to be particularly beneficial in certain uh, populations, 
particularly those that have low renin levels. So we typically think of those as older adults, uh, African Americans, also those with obesity. And in those cases, you know, volume is often a key driver of hypertension. But one of the things I think is important to recognize is that volume is an important contributor to elevated blood pressure in a large majority of patients with hypertension, regardless of their age or body status or race or ethnicity. And given that we know that most patients with hypertension are going to require more than one drug to reach their target blood pressure, one of the principal advantages, I think, of using a thiazide initially is that you affect that volume pathway immediately and you essentially prime the system because of that compensatory increase in renin that will occur with the use of a diuretic, you prime that system to respond then to the addition of other drugs like ACE inhibitors and ARBs. There's certainly disadvantages, as you mentioned, uh, you know, to starting with thiazides, most notably the, the need for monitoring of their potential adverse effects, the electrolyte, the metabolic effects. Um, you know, and at the heart of today's discussion uh, is, the, is the longstanding dogma that I learned as well as, you know, you that thiazides are supposedly less effective, you know, once that GFR uh, drops down below roughly 20 or 30. Um, and as you mentioned, that's because, you know, they have to be secreted uh, and travel through uh, to get to their site of action in the distal tubule. And even under the best circumstances, only about 5% of sodium is reabsorbed there. And so in the setting of a low GFR, it's always thought thiazide could not achieve the adequate concentration um, in that distal tubule under those circumstances. So let's talk about the study that you reviewed in, in your iFormerX commentary. As I stated in the introduction, the, the paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on the December 30th, 2021 issue. And, and the paper is entitled Chlorothaladone for Hypertension and Advanced Chronic Kidney Disease. And now we've posted a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but could you give us a brief summary of the study methods and, uh, and the key results? Sure. Um, to start with methods, this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, including 160 patients with stage 4 CKD, so EGFR of 15 to 29, and uncontrolled blood pressure, which was defined as a mean ambulatory blood pressure greater than 130 over 80, despite taking at least one blood pressure medication. Patients were excluded from the study if their mean blood pressure was greater than 160 over 100, if they had a history of stroke or MI, if they had been hospitalized for heart failure within 12 weeks prior to randomization, they were receiving high-dose loop diuretics, or if they had received a thiazide or thiazide-like diuretic within 12 weeks before randomization. Prior to being randomized, there was a two-week placebo run-in period during which blood pressure regimens were also standardized for preferred regimens, which notably were required to include an ACE, an ARB, or a beta blocker. At randomization, patients received either placebo or chlorothaladone 12.5 milligrams daily. The dose of the assigned regimen was doubled every four weeks if home blood pressure was greater than 135 over 85, up to a max dose of 50 milligrams a day. The primary outcome was change in 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure from baseline to 12 weeks. So transitioning to results, the systolic blood pressure in patients receiving chlorothaladone decreased by 11 millimeters of mercury by week 12 compared to just a 0.5 unit drop in those receiving placebo. So this was clearly a clinically significant difference that was also found to be statistically significant. 
Of note, the diastolic blood pressure also dropped more in the treatment group, so 4.9 millimeters of mercury declined with chlorothaladone versus just a one-unit drop with placebo. Also of note, the mean dose of chlorothaladone in the treatment group by the end of the trial at week 12 was approximately 25 milligrams a day. There's also an important secondary outcome, so they looked at change in the albumin to creatinine ratio at 12 weeks, and this was also found to be more pronounced in the chlorothaladone group with a 52% decline compared to just a 4% decline in the placebo group. So as expected, rates of the typical side effects seen with thiazide, as mentioned, the electrolyte and metabolic disorders were higher in the chlorothaladone group. However, only four patients receiving chlorothaladone discontinued due to adverse events, and the occurrence of serious adverse events was similar between treatment and placebo groups. Well, I, I, I think the study design was very rigorous, and, and there's one thing, though, that that troubled me about this study, and I'm wondering if you share my concern. It, it, it struck me that the investigators didn't use an active comparator in this study, and since all the patients had had to have uncontrolled blood pressure at the time of randomization, it seemed to me at least inappropriate to give someone a placebo. What safeguards were in place in this study to protect human subjects, and, and in practice, how are patients similar to those enrolled in this study? typically managed. Well, Stuart, you raise an interesting point about the ethics of, you know, giving someone with uncontrolled blood pressure a placebo. But I think it's important to keep in mind with this study that it's it's really testing a relatively unproven hypothesis, you know, that is whether thiazides, uh, you know, are even efficacious in this situation. So, you know, the study's designed uh, without any preconceived belief that one group is necessarily being put at a disadvantage uh, by getting placebo. Um, this is also, I think, where the pretrial period, which Dr. Fravel outlined, is really Im an important part of this study. Um, during that time, there was uh, standardized education on diet. Uh, the blood pressure regimens were standardized uh, during that two-week run-in period prior to randomization. There were four visits during that time period prior to the actual randomization where blood pressure was measured in triplicate. Those meds were standardized, as mentioned, and labs were measured. And then with the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring performed prior to the randomization, those uh, participants that had severely uncontrolled blood pressure with a systolic of greater than 160 or diastolic of greater than 100 were actually excluded then from the trial. There's also a 68-page protocol, uh, which you can um, access through the New England Journal website, which is very thorough, and it details the stop points, or what we also refer to sometimes as the escape criteria for those who went on to be randomized, but then had uncontrolled blood pressure throughout uh, the duration of the study. So those stop points included if a home blood pressure exceeded 180 systolic or 110 diastolic after one week of a dose titration of the study drug, or if it was greater than 160 over 100 within two weeks after a dose increase. And keep in mind that we're talking about both the placebo and the chlorthalidone group. So there was, there was built-in safeguards as far as uh, individuals needing to drop out. So I certainly would have liked to have seen an active comparator in the study. I think that's, you know, part of the point that you were getting at. Ideally, if the study would have been conducted with a group randomized to a loop diuretic and then a group randomized to the chlorothaladone, certainly I think that would have increased the generalizability of the findings. But keep in mind, this is a patient population that has a lot of underlying edema. And you see that from the fact that 40% of the participants at baseline in the study were already taking a loop diuretic. So I think it would have been difficult 
you know, to really answer the research question and do the study without allowing that underlying use of a loop diuretic and without, you know, a comparator group that just had placebo. Um, and it certainly would have been unethical to withhold the loop diuretic in those uh, patients that needed it anyway. But overall, I, I really, I appreciate your question, but I also think this is probably a study design that we can take some comfort in knowing that there were reasonable and appropriate safety measures in place, um, even in for those individuals that received a placebo. It is a, a challenging population to do these kind of studies in because, as you know, edema is a common occurrence with them, and they often need diuretics of some sort. So very challenging study to do. Well, I, I do think this was a well-designed study. There's no question about that. Uh, but there always are things that you might think have biased the results or have a potential confounder in the study that influence the, the study findings, or there may be important limitations. So what do you think about those issues? I agree, Stuart, that this is a well-done study. Um, some of the strengths, so it does include, you know, a prospective design and high completion rate as well. So 88% of participants did complete the full 12-week trial period. Additionally, the study was conducted at multiple practice sites and 40% of participants were Black. So both of these in increased the generalizability of the findings. But yes, um, there are always Im important limitations to acknowledge. So um, this has been mentioned, but um, the trial is relatively small, so including under 200 participants in total. Furthermore, only 22% of participants were women, and even fewer were Asian or Hispanic. While the study clearly demonstrated effective blood pressure lowering with chlorothaladone in this population, blood pressure, as we know, is a surrogate marker, and we still are not able to make firm conclusions regarding the impact of chlorothaladone on major clinical outcomes like cardiovascular events and kidney failure in this population. It should be noted, as mentioned previously, that the blood pressure decline demonstrated in this trial was obtained when chlorothaladone was added to a blood pressure regimen, including at minimum an ACE or an ARB or a beta blocker. It's not clear if blood pressure response to chlorothaladone would be the same in patients not using one of these classes in combination. Finally, as Dr. Ernst alluded to, it's still unclear whether chlorothaladone would have been better than a loop diuretic if compared head-to-head. -head. And furthermore, it is not clear if we can extrapolate chlorothaladone findings to HCTZ, which as we know is more commonly used in practice. So what's the bottom line? Do you think we should consider using chlorothaladone more often in patients with advanced CKD? Uh, the blood pressure lowering was actually quite impressive. Uh, but it's not clear if this will translate, as you said, into improved cardiovascular arena outcomes. How should we apply these findings? Should, should we be making changes to our practice? Stuart, Shelley and I have discussed this paper at length between ourselves. And with Shelley's uh, practice uh, specialty in the renal hypertension clinic, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to include her in this conversation. But together, as we've gone over this study, we really think it does make a compelling argument for the use of chlorothaladone in patients with advanced CKD who have uncontrolled blood pressure. You know, at the end of the day, we still believe that it really boils down to the fact that the cardiovascular and the renal outcomes are going to be ultimately driven by the degree of blood pressure reduction from whatever that baseline is and getting to that goal blood pressure. So if you have advanced CKD and your blood pressure is well controlled already, there wouldn't be a reason, we feel, to switch from whatever you're on or to add chlorothaladone. Uh, it does change practice, however, in the sense that we now know that the thiazide-like diuretic chlorothaladone has another feather in its cap. It remains effective as an antihypertensive in these patients with 
advance to chronic kidney disease. So I think it tells us it's time for the old dogma to go and abandon that practice of arbitrarily discontinuing a thiazide when GFR is low, if there are no other clinical reasons to do, to do so. And so chlorthalidone becomes another tool in the toolbox in caring for these complicated patients, as you know, which are historically difficult to control and require multiple drugs. There are certainly some adverse event concerns, however, to keep in mind. And if it's used in this situation, we need to have close monitoring, as you would expect any time we would use two diuretics uh, in a patient. Shelly, Michael, thank you again for being on the iFormerX podcast today and writing the commentary. I'm certainly a fan of chlorthalidone, and it appears to be an you know, effective agent in patients with advanced kidney disease. I'm still left wondering what its place in therapy should be. Um, having additional options at our disposal is certainly nice. And well, I hope our listeners will share with us some of their thoughts on what they believe the role of chlorthalidone should be. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. And if you haven't already joined iFormerX, sign up today. It's free. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association Board Prep and Recertification Program. You can earn recertification and continuing education credit to this program that you're listening to right now. So just click on that link posted below the article to learn more. And finally, I'd like to thank all of the PGY2 Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Practice Program directors out there who have encouraged their residents to join iFormerX, who use iFormerX as part of their professional development programming for their preceptors and their residents, and who encourage their residents to contact me about writing a commentary. And if you'd like to learn more about how you and your residents can get involved, just send me an email. It's a, it's a great way to get residents involved in a scholarly endeavor and help keep all of us informed about the evidence that influences pharmacotherapy and pharmacy practice. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.